John 18, verse 28, to chapter 19, verse 16. Jesus before Pilate. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Romanian governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover, so Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk talk to you about me? I am a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in that I, was, that I am king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is the truth, Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner uh, at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in the rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Amen. 
Father, we thank you for this time of year when we can concentrate and remind ourselves again of all that Jesus has done through his arrest, his trial, his death and resurrection. Father, these are familiar stories, and we pray this morning that we'll just be struck again by all that he did so in laying aside his majesty so that people like you and I could come to know Jesus Christ. Lord, help us today to see Jesus in the scriptures, we pray. Help our hearts to be open and help us to be obedient to what your word is saying to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So please have that scripture verses open in front of you this morning. He was born on the 22nd of November, 1986, without a fibula in both his legs. His parents yielded to doctors' recommendation that his lower legs should be amputated at 11 months old. And so that's what happened. At 13 months old, he was fitted with prosthesis. And at 17 months, he was walking again. And fast forward to the summer of 2012, and Oscar Leonard, uh, Carl Pistorius, ran a double-leg amputee, participated in the Olympic Games. But on the 14th of February, 2013, Oscar Pistorius' life changed forever following the shooting and subsequent death of his girlfriend, uh, Riva Stenkamp. Time magazine ran with an issue, and it said this with a picture of Oscar Pistorius at the front. It said, man, gunman, superman. Do you remember that? Maybe seen it over the years. And it was a high-profile case and trial in which Pistorius was charged with manslaughter and then murder. He was questioned, broke down numerous times in the trial proceedings, and was eventually charged and is serving a sentence today. And that famous case is very similar somewhat to what we have in John's Gospel today because we are coming into a legal process, a legal system in John's Gospel here in chapter 18 and 19 that you have open in front of you. Up to this point, John's Gospel has brought Jesus before Ananias, the former high priest. He's come before Caiaphas. He's been before the Sanhedrin, all asking questions of him, illegally asking him, illegally at times as well. But these two men in the Sanhedrin court are all satisfied that Jesus has a charge to answer for. And now, in chapter 18, verse 28, do you see it? In the early morning, Jesus is led by the Jews to the palace of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, for questioning. And if you have time, maybe this afternoon, which you won't, um, maybe right now, is that you've got to pick up in, in this passage, and maybe throughout the rest of them as well, is there is a drama unfolding here. In chapter 18 and 19, you'll see Pilate go inside and outside. And what I mean by that is he'll go inside the palace to question Jesus, and he'll come out to the crowd. And it's like being on stage, really, that this drama has been unfolded, that he goes in and out. And you'll see it numerous times in these chapters. You'll also see in John's Gospel what they call Johannine irony, that constantly he is saying something that is ironic, and I'll point it out in a few minutes, what it happens. But you'll see it straight away maybe in verses 28 and 29, because the irony of it is they come to Pilate's house or his palace with Jesus, and then in verse 29 we see, or 28, sorry, we see the concern. Their concern is to say ceremonially clean so they don't go in. So what does Pilate have to do? He has to go out. There's irony here. There's irony for the point that this is it. 
that here were a people, a religious people, who believed that if you go into the house of a Gentile, that you'll become unclean for the Passover. And yet the irony of it is, is that here they are bringing the Passover lamb, Jesus, to Pilate. And they're going to have him killed. And so John is pointing out here in this very subtlety, he's telling us that Jews don't go into Gentiles' house because they become unclean. But he's also telling, there's irony here, in order to remain clean, they stayed outside the house. But what they were doing was killing the one who would make them clean, in verse 28. And so there's lots of irony coming through here. And Pilate asked the question, do you see it in verse 29? What charges are you bringing against this man? And it seems a reasonable question, doesn't it? If a group of people bring a man to you and they say, look, he's done something wrong, well, what's the charge? What do you bring him before him? And do you see how snooty they get? In, in the next verse, he says, if you were not a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. And Pilate is having none of it. And he says to them, verse 31, but you ha- they, they ha- he's having none of it. And he's telling them, do your own law. They have your own system for dealing with this. And Pilate says, verse 31, We have no right to execute anyone, says the Jews. And what you have here is a problem for the Jews. They are coming on charges for Jesus, but they cannot execute. They cannot execute him. They cannot kill him because they are occupied by Rome. And this interaction between Pilate and the Jews tell you two things. It tells us this firstly, that the chief priests and the religious leaders were intent on having Jesus executed. This is clear throughout John's gospel. They just didn't want him arrested and beaten and let go. They wanted him killed. And so if you go back to chapter 5 of John's gospel, you'll read this. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling his own God his own father and making himself equal with God. And then Jesus knew they were trying to kill him because he says this, and it is you, you're determined to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I've heard from God. They wanted him dead. It has been their their purpose to kill this man who claimed to be God for a long time. and And now the factors are falling into place to allow that to happen. But they cannot do it. Why? Because they're under Roman occupancy, and the Romans were the only ones who had the authority to kill and to execute that. Secondly, for the Jews, their real issue with Jesus was that he claimed to be the Son of God. He was a blasphemer in their eyes. That was the major problem with him. It was a religious charge, but blasphemy would carry no weight with Pilate. He would laugh them away. He wasn't worried about a man who claimed to be God. He would have more concern if he claimed to be something else and was against Rome or Caesar. And the Jews know that their claim of blasphemy would carry no weight in Pilate's eyes. And so they brought the charge of Jesus being a king to Pilate, which would be more politically charged. And that is why in verse 33, Pilate asked them, asked Jesus directly, are you the king of the Jews? are you the king of the Jews? He asks them. And Jesus, again, as we've seen in previous chapters, he's gone from being questioned to being the questioner. And he says to Pilate, he says, was that your own idea or did someone tell you that? To which Pilate again thinks this is some sort of internal squabble among the Jewish people. And he says, am I a Jew that your people and your chief priests handed you over? It's more like Pilate is seeing this as an internal squabble among the Jews. Sort it out between you if you can't. 
then why have they handed you over? And this morning, we're going to see through this interaction between Pilate and Jesus, the very nature or essence of Jesus's kingdom. And I want to make a couple of points this morning as we draw out the kingdom, Jesus's kingdom here from this interaction between Pilate and Jesus. And the first is this. The first point that Jesus makes is this about his kingdom. He says this, the kingdom of God is not, verse 36. Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. Jesus goes on and he explains to Pilate, are you king of the Jews? Let me tell you, says Jesus, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would come. They would prevent my arrest. They'd be armed to the teeth with weapons. Instead, what we found in the previous chapter is him telling Peter, put away your sword, Peter. This must happen. We find Jesus abandoned by his followers. You see, Jesus' kingdom looks very different to the kingdoms of the world. It operates in a different way. It doesn't use the conventional means of gaining power or even keeping power. And Jesus speaks to Pilate about the nature of his kingdom. And Pilate seems to get it. Because the kingdom that he's facing in front with this man is not a threat to him. And so he says in verse 37, you're a king then. And Jesus doesn't deny it, being a king. Instead, he uses it to help Pilate understand the nature of his kingdom in verse 37. The second part that Jesus said is the kingdom is one of truth. So it's not of this world. It's a kingdom of which one of truth Another way of putting this is that Jesus is saying that his kingdom, his rule, has a mission. It is to show truth, to reveal truth. Don Carson puts it this way in his commentary. He says that truth is nothing less than the self-disclosure of God in his Son, who is truth. You see, Jesus came to this world to make God known, to reveal him, to show us who God is. And in the person and life of Jesus, we have God himself who declared himself to be the truth. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, is about truth. And so, today, before Pilate, and even for us today, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus Christ and see the truth for what it is when it came in the person of him. That is why John, at the very start of his gospel, says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. But when faced with the reality of God's kingdom of truth, what happens? What happens when faced with the person who is truth, Jesus, and his kingdom? I don't know if you've ever watched uh, the, the very emotive scene in A Few Good Men where you have Jack Nicholson and then you have the young Tom Cruise as the lawyer or Navy SEAL uh, lawyer. And at one point, Tom Cruise in the movie says, I want the truth, and he's roaring at, at Jessup. Remember this boy? And Jessup goes, you can't handle the truth, he says to him, roaring back. And from that moment on, the truth comes out. But when faced with the truth of Jesus' kingdom here, what happens, people? What happens? They don't accept it. It's not even that they can't handle the truth. They are rejecting it. Do you see that in this passage? They won't accept that Jesus is the Son of God, the Nazarene. They won't accept him that he's a promised Messiah. They deliberately seek to destroy God's truth by having him killed. And there are three incidents in this passage that kind of show us this rejection of God's truth in this passage before us this morning. 
The first is found in verse 38 and 40. Have a look at it. And the first rejection, you see it very clearly. It's a bit like the X factor, isn't it, in verses 38 and 40, or, or even Strictly Come Dancing, where you have two characters left. And the crowd, the mob, are going to decide who stays and who goes. And it's a bit like that here in verses 38 to 40, because Pilate is trying to free Jesus. And he decides to do a mob vote through a custom that was done at Passover time. And notice the words of the crowd as they decide. Verse 40, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. They don't want the truth. Instead, they want the man who led a rebellion. And this is very obviously seen with Barabbas here. The second incident is found in in chapter 19, verse 14 and 15. Just cast your eye over, where Pilate, in the final moments before he hands Jesus over to be crucified, says to the crowd, here is your king. And the crowd shout back, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate's astonished, and he says, shall I crucify the king? We have no king but Caesar, in verse 15. So twice the crowd have the choice, give us truth, give us Jesus, who is the truth. And instead they say, no, give us Barabbas. And then when they're offered again the truth of Jesus, they say, no, we have no king but Caesar. You've got to get into your heads, the Jews hated the Romans. They despised their rule, and here we see them blatantly rejecting Jesus, their king, because they say, we have no king but Caesar. In the Old Testament, God's people had never had a king for a while. And then they looked around at the nations around them and they said, look, Lord, we we want a king like the other nations. God warned them about having a king. He gave them a king. He gave them Saul, and he was a disaster. And after that, every other king had flaws and character flaws. But they were looking forward to the promised king that would come, that would rule them with righteousness and goodness. And when he comes... What do they do? They reject him. They reject the one who is the truth. They reject the king who is sent from God. And here we see that twice they reject him. But thirdly, we see it with Pilate as well, don't we? He was faced with the truth. He was faced with Jesus who told him, I'm not of this world. And yet what does Pilate do? He rejects him. He will not act upon the truth that he knows. Character flaws is particularly straight with Pilate. Many in history saw him as a weak character, but a cruel character as well. And when he is faced with the truth here, he doesn't act upon it. He doesn't take Jesus away instead. He, he, He doesn't accept it. And it's particularly hard when you understand these rejections of Jesus, when they say that they have no king, when they choose Barabbas, when Pilate doesn't, when faced with Jesus, the truth, and then does something totally different. It's very hard to get your head around it, isn't it? But you know something? We're still in that kind of mode, aren't we? The reality is Jesus' kingdom of truth is still on trial today. Many of us are faced with the life and teaching of Jesus and its implications, and we say, no, I don't want him. I don't want his rule over my life. I don't want his ways or who he is. And folks, since January, we've been looking at Jesus, who is the truth in John's gospel. And the question is, are you beginning to see that this man is none other than the Son of God? Have you given your life to him? If he is truth, you're faced with that reality like Pilate is. Are you telling me, you know what, I'm just rejecting it? 
He's not my king. I have no king. Because what the gospel here has been doing over these last number of weeks is facing us with the truth of this Jesus. And the question is, what are we going to do with him? What are we going to face when faced with his truth? Are we going to trust him, receive his eternal life, or are we going to say we have no king? Thirdly, we'll see here that Jesus' kingdom is greater than all. In chapter 19, verses 9 to 11, do you see it there? As Pilate seeks to attempt, or sees his attempt to appease the Jews, and as he tries to free Jesus, it all fails in front of him. And he now, in verses 19, chapter 19, verses 9 to 11, goes and questions Jesus more. And what does Jesus do? He remains silent. He doesn't speak. We're into Isaiah language here. The sheep before her shears is silent and doesn't open his mouth. Why does he stay quiet? Because he's fulfilling scriptures. And Pilate is put out by this. It's like, it's like one of my kids, right? When, when you ask him a question, they just blank you. And it's a bit like this, isn't it? Jesus is here, he's not answering, and Pilate is put out with it. And guess what Pilate does? It's a bit like the, the mum or dad who says, I'm your parent, answer me. And Pilate in verse 10 says, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Pilate is saying to Jesus, I can free you or kill you. I'm in charge. I have the authority. But notice what Jesus reminds Pilate and us today, verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. It is a reminder, isn't it, that often if you're in a power position, that it is delegated power. God gives delegated power to leaders in our world. He gives it to church leaders. But we always need to remember that any power that is given or authority that is given is given from above. And Pilate thinks, I'm in charge. I have authority. I have authority to kill you, Jesus, or set you free. And Jesus reminds him who is the true king and kingdom. And he says to him, you'd have no power over me if it were not given from God. It's a reminder to Pilate and to us today that ultimately all authority, all plans, decisions are under the sovereignty of God above. Bruce Milne in his commentary says this, Jesus is conscious of an authority infinitely greater than any wielded by Pilate, an authority in whose hands those human forces are but just a reed in the wind. It's a lovely imagery, isn't it? That he's in control that Jesus' kingdom is greater than any other kingdom. God sent Jesus, his son, to die. No Jewish court was going to bring that about unless God allowed it. No Roman governor or empire were going to curtail God's plans. And that's why Jesus here reminds Pilate that you have no authority over me if it wasn't given to you from God. Folks, there's lots to be applied there with that that so often we struggle with the plans of God and the plans of our own. And sometimes we think, where is God? What is he doing? And if anything you spot over these next few weeks in John's gospel, you will see the purposes and plans of God worked out through the courts of the Jews, through the Roman Empire in all its might and glory, to the arrogance of Pilate who says, I could kill you. No, you can't, says Jesus. My father is in control his kingdom is far greater than all. So Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is one of truth. 
And Jesus' kingdom is greater than all this morning as we look at this passage. And briefly this morning, I want to finish by moving from the nature of Jesus' kingdom to the type of king that Jesus is. And the first point is this, is that he is the innocent one. There have been over the last number of weeks in the media some high-profile cases. I don't know if you've been following them or, or keeping up with them. Simon Danielli, who former rugby player, played for Ulster at one time, was in the news. There's also a guy in Wicklow called Roy Webster who ended up killing uh, a woman who he had an affair with. And all these cases, they're found guilty of their crime in the court of law and will have to face the consequences. But when it comes to Jesus' trial here, it is hugely significant that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the outsider, the highest authority in the land after questioning Jesus on three occasions in this passage before you this morning, and follow them with me, he says this. Look at chapter 18, verse 36. I find no basis for a charge against him. Chapter 19, verse 4. Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And then chapter 19, verse 6. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Jesus is declared innocent. No basis for charge against him by Rome. By the highest authority in the land, he's declared there is nothing he has done that is wrong. The innocence of Jesus attested to by Pilate. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. Because where are we in this? What time of year? We're in Passover. If you want to do Passover, what do you do? You bring a perfect lamb. One that has no blemishes. You bring it to the temple to be sacrificed. And John, from the very start of the gospel, through John the Baptist said, Look, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Here, Pilate is telling us he's innocent. Jesus is the true Passover lamb, the one who is perfect in all that he does, and he is moving towards being sacrificed at the cross of Calvary. Don't miss it. Jesus, the king, is innocent. But secondly, Jesus is our substitute and rescuer. He is innocent. He's declared innocent by Pilate. But then if you turn down to chapter 19, verse 13, Pilate sits on the judgment seat and he hands Jesus over to be crucified. And some of you here today will go, it's real injustice. Yes, it is, without doubt. Others of you go, it's the purposes of God. Yes. Some of you will think victim. Hardly. We've seen that he is in control of all that is happening, Jesus is. Because Jesus is the king who is our substitute and rescuer. Get this this morning. Jesus, the innocent one, in word and deed, will be charged and he'll be killed by crucifixion. But you know what? Another person will be freed. Because there is a man who was guilty, a murderer, a rebellious one, who will go free. You see, you can't miss the significance of this. Jesus is the substitute and rescuer for Barabbas, isn't he? He had Barabbas needed this. What a moment for Barabbas, isn't it? Imagine what it must have been like for him. He knew he was guilty. He knew he had done something wrong and deserved punishment. And yet Jesus takes his place. The one who deserved death is free. 
because Jesus is his substitute. One commentator puts it like this. He says, Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place, for it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved that the wrath of God should be poured upon me. I deserve the eternal punishment. He, Jesus, was delivered up from my offenses. He was handed over for judgment because of my sins. This is why we speak of substitutionary atonement. Are you getting it? Barabbas walked free that day while Jesus faced the death and the guilt. The beauty of this truth is that we are all like Barabbas. We're guilty, sinful people. We deserve God's anger and judgment and wrath. And yet Jesus becomes our perfect substitute and rescuer. Instead of facing God's punishment, Christ meets it. Instead of facing our own sin, he takes it upon himself. And that is why 2 Corinthians mentions this lovely little verse. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if you're here this morning and you know you're like Barabbas, then hear the good news that Jesus, who didn't know what it was to sin, a rebel took upon himself your sin. It's punishment from God so that you would have the opportunity to be free, to be forgiven, and become righteous before him. That is an amazing exchange to, take, to be involved in. Here we have a picture of the gospel about Jesus and good news for Barabbas's like you and me here this morning. He had no way he could save himself. He couldn't get out of prison. He couldn't reform himself. He was guilty, guilty, guilty. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes as the innocent one to free him. His only hope was for Jesus to take his place. And it is true for us here today. And then lastly, this morning, to close, you may have been conscious of two little phrases that occur in this passage, which I want to close on this morning. And the two phrases are this concerning Jesus. The first one occurs after Jesus has been severely flogged. He's made fun of by the Roman guards. They strike him. They dress him up, put a crown on his head and mock robe, and they say, hail him, king of the Jews. Jesus then is paraded out in front of the crowd, bruised and bloodied and humiliated. And Pilate says this to them, here is the man. Later, Pilate will bring Jesus out to the crowd again, and he says in verse 14, do you see it? Here is your king. Here is the man, verse 5, and here is your king. On one level, these phrases of Jesus are full of irony because they're pathetic. Here is a sad picture of a man who is bruised in the face from the slaps he got, who is disgraced, beaten, mocked. It looks foolish and pathetic. It's not very impressive. And Pilate comes out and he goes, here is the man. Here is your king. But on another level, this man, this king, is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is our king. And this way that his kingdom operates is this way. It displays in weakness so that you and I will come to know him and to follow him. This is the man, this is the king that we all need here today. It doesn't look impressive. It's bruised, it's battered, it's pathetic in many ways, unimpressive. But here in the irony of John's gospel, he's saying, here is the man, 
and here is your king. As he goes to the cross to die for you and me to satisfy the justice and wrath of God so that we'll come to know their truth, who is Jesus who became flesh, the one full of grace and truth from the Father. Folks, this morning, Jesus is the man. He is the king that each of us need. It's not very impressive, but the way of the kingdom of God has never been impressive. He took the lower spot. He was bruised, beaten, killed for you and I because our sins deserve it. And today we rejoice that this is our man. This is our king. Let me pray for us as we continue. Father, this morning we thank you for your word to us. And we thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is not of this world. We thank you that it is truth. And that truth is found in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is greater than any other. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the innocent one. He is our substitute, our rescuer. And this morning, Father, thank you for reminding us that here is the man and the king that we all need. Father, save us from thinking that this is unimpressive. Save us, Lord, from thinking that we can find truth somewhere else. Save us from looking at this world around us and thinking this is the way the kingdom should be. Father, your son humbled himself, was beaten and flogged, took upon himself our sin so that we could be free, free because he is the truth. Lord, help us to rejoice this morning in the man who was the son of God, in our king, and help us to lay our lives before him, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.